You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, John. Hi, Bob. How are you doing? I'm doing well, uh, and I'm glad to be here with you. It's been a long time since we've seen each other. Too long. It has been a while. It's been uh, a couple of years now. Uh, and uh, so I'll have to settle for uh, Zoom for the time being, I guess. Uh, let me introduce us. I'm Robert Wright. This is The Right Show, available on streaming video and via audio podcast. You are John Mearsheimer, very distinguished political scientist at the University of uh, Chicago. We're going to have a, a discussion, and I suspect something of, a, of an argument, uh, a debate about international law. Uh, we both have, I think, strong views about it. But first, let's say a little more about you. Uh, do you want to, what are your favorite uh, uh, books to uh, to plug when you're mentioning books you've written? You've written a number. I think probably the two most important books are, number one, The Tragedy of Great Parapolitics, which is where I lay out my basic realist theory of international relations. And then second, my most recent book, uh, which deals with... Uh, liberal foreign policy during the unipolar moment. It's called The Great Delusion, uh, Liberal Dreams and in International Reality. Uh, those are probably uh, my two most important books. One might argue that my book on the Israel lobby uh, fits in the same general category. Uh, that was surely my most controversial book, uh, which I wrote with Steve Walt, of course. Uh, and actually, that made the New York Times bestseller list, which was not true of any other book I wrote. But uh, I would say that those three books are my principal uh, works. Okay. Um, yeah, some some topics are more likely to get you on the bestseller list than others. And I would say uh, writing about realism is not uh, maybe, maybe on the list so much as writing about Israel and, and uh, Middle East. Um, so... Uh, Let's let's talk a little about realism to set the stage for this, because your view of international law, I mean, my view is that international law has to become more and more important and more widely adhered to for the sake of uh, the planet and the United States, and that the United States should lead uh, in, in the uh, growing compliance with international law. Uh, your line on that is, uh, Bob, wake up. <laughs> we're living in the real world here. Uh, there's never been consistent compliance with international law by great powers. And, 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 uh, and, and I don't believe, if I understand you correctly, you really recommend it. So, uh, but, but before we get into that, you know, because your view is so grounded in the school of thought known as realism, and in fact, I should say, you are one of the preeminent scholars of, of this thing called realism in international relations. Uh, I think if, you know, if, if political scientists were asked to name, you know, a few, a few major realists among American political scientists, you would certainly be, you would certainly get mentioned. Um, uh, why don't you tell us what you, you see realism as being? What is your, what is your, you know, if you're talking to somebody who, who doesn't know anything about political theory, and they're asking you what it means for you to call yourself a realist in, in international relations thought, what do you say? My basic argument as a realist is that um, states operate in an anarchic system. That means there's no higher authority in the state system. And 
the principal goal, not the only goal by any means, but the principal goal of states is survival. If you're in an anarchic system, a system with no higher authority, and you're dealing with other states that might have malign intentions and might also have a lot of military capability, the best way to survive, and again, survival is the principal goal, is to be the most powerful state in the system. And you will go to great lengths to make sure that is the case. Right. So realists like me believe that the structure of the international system, the fact that it's anarchic and you can never know the intentions of other states, is what causes those states to compete with each other for power and to pay so much attention to the balance of power. That, in essence, I think, Bob, is what realism is all about, at least for John Mearsheimer. OK, so. Uh, so it's kind of a jungle out there, at least in the sense that there is no state level authority governing the planet. There's no police department to go to when your country is in trouble. I mean, you can appeal to nations, you can appeal to the United Nations. And sometimes, you know, military force has been authorized by the United Nations to roll back aggression. But by and large, you're saying, look, you certainly can't count on that in any consistent way. It's a jungle out there. So you should expect states to you know, take matters into their own hands in defending their interests. And if that means uh, violating the rule of law, if they see their self-interest as uh, tied to violating the rule of law and they think they can get away with it, violating international law, you should expect to see it and you shouldn't really expect that ever to change. Is that fair? Yeah, uh, let me just put a somewhat finer point on it. I think uh, that great powers who basically write the rules or write international law understand that rules matter, institutions matter, international law matters. It's in the interest of great powers to have lots of rules in the modern world. So there's no dispute between you and me on that. I think where you and I differ is that I believe that if a great power thinks that its vital interests are threatened by obeying a rule or a law that it wrote, in such a case, it will violate the rule. It will violate the law. It will do whatever is necessary to protect itself, to guarantee its survival. Now, very importantly, Bob, this does not happen often because the great powers write the rules so that they suit the great powers' interests. So obviously, you're not going to have a whole heck of a lot of cases where the great powers feel compelled to violate those rules or those laws. But every once in a while, you run into an important case where a state, a great power in particular, decides that the rules counter act what are the state's vital interests. And in that case, it will axiomatically violate the rules. That's the basic argument here. Okay. Okay. And, you know, this is a good opportunity to talk a little maybe about specific incarnations of international law, because, you know, people hear the term, a lot of people don't know exactly what we're referring to. 
But why don't we uh, talk about some specific, uh, you know, laws, bodies of law, and institutions that that are kind of the incarnations of the law, uh, particularly maybe those uh, that were created uh, around the mid uh, 20th century in, in the wake of World War II, because I think you'll probably consider this a good example of the great powers writing the rules in the first place, right? The, the U.S. after World War II was in a, a, a very strong position to influence the writing of rules. Um, so why don't you give us some examples of uh, how international law evolved in the wake of World War II that illustrate your point about the role of great powers in crafting international law? Okay, I, I think one really good example would be the Non-Proliferation Treaty, which basically the Soviet- so early ni early 1960s. Actually yeah. 1968. I, I think there was movement oh. towards crafting uh, an NPT starting in the early 60s, but 1968 is usually the date that is put on it. And it was, I think, ratified in 1970. But the key point here is that both the United States and the Soviet Union, which were the only two great powers on the planet during the Cold War, they decided that the proliferation problem was getting out of hand and that something had to be done to stem the tide of nuclear proliferation. So they got together and they effectively wrote the NPT, which is a series of rules or laws. And the NPT, of course, is an institution. So you can see how all these words are synonymous. And what the Soviets and the Americans did was they wrote rules that were in their interest because both of those superpowers had no interest in proliferation. And they then worked together to force other states to sign the NPT and then obey the NPT so that there would be no uh, more proliferation. Of course, there was a bit more proliferation after 1968, but the NPT helped a lot. And this is a good example, Bob, of how rules served the interests of great powers. The NPT has worked to the advantage of the Americans and the Soviets, now the Russians. So rules were a good thing. But you also want to remember that when we wrote the NPT, we wrote into it that the United States and the Soviet Union would go to great lengths to reduce and ultimately eliminate their nuclear weapons. In other words, if the great powers are saying the smaller powers can't have nuclear weapons, one would expect the great powers to eventually get rid of their own nuclear weapons. But if you look at the arms racing that took place during the latter part of the Cold War after the NPT was signed, and if you look at what the Americans are doing now in terms of expanding their nuclear capabilities, uh, it's hard to say that we have been obeying the rules of the NPT. Uh, we concoct stories that try to show that, yes, we have been living up to the rules. But in fact, I don't think we have, and I don't think we ever have. I think we will keep our nuclear weapons, expand our nuclear arsenal, uh, and arms race with the Chinese in the decades ahead. But that really uh, violates the treaty, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, a, a slightly different kind of example, I think, although it ultimately does serve to make your point, probably, is the law governing, uh, you know, war, lawful and unlawful war. Ostensibly, 
that is uh, doesn't favor anybody. It's against trans-border aggression. And uh, if, if you are attacked, you have a right to defend yourself. If, if you uh, commit trans-border aggression, you have violated international law. On the other hand, if you look at the mechanism of enforcement that was built after World War II, it gives more power to a few countries than, than to others because the uh, to, to authorize uh, the, the use of force uh, in, a, in a, you know, if, if it's any kind of unclear case, like, for example, us invading Iraq in, uh, uh, in 2003, or, or if there's any kind of unclear case and you want um, to have international law on your side, it's, it's not obvious you're responding, responding to transport aggression, but you want to call your, your, your war lawful, there's a way to do it. You get the Security Council to authorize it and say that you know you're you're acting on behalf of international peace and security or something or other, and uh, and then it will be lawful. But the way the institution was set up, only five five countries have the power to veto uh, action by the Security Council, and we are one of those. And and uh, the other four, uh, I guess, were all maybe allies at the time this was set up, and three of them uh, still are. The 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 uh, or well. Uh, I guess two of them still are, but um, but in any event, you can see how the system was set up so that we have disproportionate influence over um, uh, what the Security Council does and does not deem a lawful war. And as the Iraq War illustrates, um, when we we cannot get uh, the the a vote in favor of. So in other words, we could veto, like if Russia wanted to invade uh, some country and get Security Council authorization, authorization, we could veto that. Um, on the other hand, because Russia is one of those five great powers, it could, it could veto uh, our request for authorization to invade, say, Iraq. And in fact, Iraq is an example where, because of the way the system was set up, uh, we could not get Security Council authorization to invade. So. This illustrates another, another of your points, namely that when the international law was not on our side, we just ignored it. We just invaded Iraq, right? So, uh, so, so I guess we've now shown examples of both, both different ways international law and its in attendant institutions can be set up to favor great powers and how at least one great power has been known to disregard international law when it doesn't see that as in its interest. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, I think you're, you're, the story you're telling is a very realist story. Whether it's right or wrong is another right. matter, but that, that is the realist story I would tell. Yeah, and you know, it's funny, one, uh, well, okay, uh, one interesting thing about realism is it is it has both a descriptive and a prescriptive side. I mean, I guess not all realists get, get in the business of recommending policies, but you certainly express your opinions. And we think of realism as having, on the one hand, a description of the world, which, which we kind of cover. And on the other hand, certain kinds of policy preferences you tend to see in realists uh, that is thought to correspond somehow to that, uh, to the, to the, the, the description, the, the, uh, the diagnosis, I guess you might say. Um, and uh, we haven't yet moved from one to the other. In other words, we haven't yet gotten into what you think policy should be. But first, can you tell me, am I right that 
you don't see this in all IR schools of thought, do you? International relations schools of thought. In other words, or maybe you do, because you kind of do with, I guess, what's called, well, you tell me, do you always see both a descriptive and a prescriptive dimension of these schools of thought, or is realism unusual in the extent to which both are associated with it? No, you see it in all of the major theories in international politics. Just take the three canonical liberal theories. One is that economic interdependence produces peace. Number two is that democracies don't fight each other. Therefore, spreading democracy across the planet will make for a more peaceful world. And number three, institutions, which is, of course, what you and I are talking about today, institutions are really good because if you can embed countries in institutions, they obey rules. And if you write rules that limit conflict and promote co cooperation, the fact that states become obedient to the rules facilitates peace. So if you look at liberal hegemony, okay. which is the foreign policy that the United States pursued during the unipolar moment, it was based on the three canonical liberal theories. And those liberal theories, much like my version of realism, has explanatory power and prescriptive power. Okay. Now, as for the explanatory power, I've I've taken realists to say, by and large, nations will, uh, will well, I, I guess like, an important question is, is the theory that nations will do things that are in their self-interest or just that they will do things that they perceive to be in their interest and may, in fact, often be wrong about that? Uh, is which is it, that they will pursue self-interest or that they will pursue what they think is their self-interest, but that will not always correspond with actual interest? Well, they'll do what they think is in their self-interest. But right. as you know, we live in a world of radical uncertainty. And sometimes when you do something that you think is in your self-interest, it backfires and it bites you in the hiney. So the fact that you do something that you right. think is in your self-interest does not guarantee that you will succeed. Uh, as my mother used to say when I was a little boy, the right. road to hell is paved with good intentions. Um, and just this is not a realist story, but if you right. think about the liberals who took us into Iraq, they thought the liberals and the neoconservatives, they thought they were doing a good thing not just for the United States, but for the people of Iraq. It turned out to be a giant fiasco. It was one of the major foreign policy blunders of all time. But as you as you predicted, as you predicted, I, I, I want to give you credit for you were against the Iraq war. Um, I remember seeing you on TV. Yes. Con I, I was struck by how confident you were that this was going to be a bad idea. I, uh, I, I was impressed because I was against the war, but I didn't feel certain about what would happen. You seem sure that this would be a very lead to a very bad outcome. And I think you should get credit for that. <laughs> Go ahead. Well, the thing is, I, I went I was in the American military from June 1965 until August 1975. 
which was coterminous with the Vietnam War. So the Vietnam War influenced me as a young man in truly profound ways. And one thing I learned during the Vietnam War is you want to stay out of places like Vietnam, Afghanistan, and Iraq. Uh, in fact, with regard to Afghanistan, in the fall of 2001, before the Taliban had fall, fallen, I was warning that we better not put large ground forces into Afghanistan, uh, that this is, uh, this is jumping into a quagmire. And I thought that that's what would happen in Iraq as it happened in Vietnam. Uh, so my view is stay out of those places. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, I guess here's where this question is leading about how often, I mean, you've just given us examples where a nation thought that it was in their interest to have a war. Uh, Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, it's, there's pretty much a consensus that, that we were wrong about Vietnam and Iraq and, uh, Afghanistan doesn't look that great in the rear view mirror. Uh, so this suggests that nations, uh, are not infrequently quite wrong about when, uh, it is in their interest to, to have a war and correspondingly when it might be in their interest to have a war that violates international law. So in light of that fact, I'm not sure how you get from description to prescription, right? In other words, if nations are this bad at uh, at pursuing war wisely, as bad as the United States has been, might it not be better for them to just adopt a rule almost by way of self-restraint that they will only pursue legal wars? Now, if we had done that, uh, if that had been a rule of thumb, we still would have gone into Afghanistan, but we wouldn't have gone into Iraq. We wouldn't have... Uh, uh, bombed, uh, intervened in Serbia, which is uh, hasn't been a disaster, but hasn't doesn't you know we're still there. It hasn't worked out all that well. Um, I think you could argue that on balance, I mean, you would have still have had the Persian Gulf War. You would have had some wars and not others. Um, but uh, wouldn't you? Wouldn't the United States have been better off just saying, look, if we want to pursue a war and we can't get permission from Security Council, we won't do it. Wouldn't that have been better? Yes, but is that the reason you don't want to pursue a war? No. Uh, I mean, the truth is that it may be the case that international law says you should not start a war, but it makes good sense to start a war, and that war turns out well. Uh, so hypothetically, you can imagine situations like that. Uh, I think... On balance, you want to get uh, uh, you want to get permission from the Security Council uh, to go to war. You want to do everything you can to foster obedience to the law. It's in the American national interest to do that. Again, I am not arguing that international law or rules or institutions are irrelevant. On the contrary, for purposes right. of you know statecraft in the modern age, they're indispensable. So I think you want to write rules if you're the United States that serve your interests, and you want to go to great lengths to obey those rules as much as you possibly can. But you do want to recognize that there are going to be times where you just have to thumb your nose at the rules, to be honest. Although we don't thumb our nose. What we do is we go over to Harvard Law School or the University of Chicago Law School, and we get fancy lawyers 
who can explain why a violation of international law really isn't a violation of international law. Uh, but they don't right. fool people like you and I, uh, or like you and me. Uh, but nevertheless, right. that's what happens. Uh, but again, I, I, I'm not someone who has a cavalier attitude towards international law and views international law as some great obstacle. This is the neoconservative yeah. view, by the way, Bob. This is why neoconservatives hate international institutions. The only real difference between liberals, liberal internationalists, and neoconservatives, just take Madeleine Albright on one hand and Paul Wolfowitz on the other as representatives of those two schools of thought. The only real difference between them is how they think about international rules, international law, international institutions. The neoconservatives despise international law because they think that it, it's the Lilliputians tying up Gulliver. My argument is this is ridiculous. Gulliver, if Gulliver wants to go to war, Gulliver's gonna go to war. The Lilliputians aren't gonna stop him. And the fact is, and the neoconservatives should understand this, that international law sometimes um, uh, can be very beneficial. And for that reason, uh, you want to pay attention to it and, and honor it as much as you can. Well, what are the examples where it's beneficial that they, that, that they should recognize? The benefits of international law? I'm not sure what you're saying. That, yeah, that neocons should understand, but don't. Well, if you were trying to convince a neoconservative, uh, look, it's actually uh, in our institution, in our interest to uphold these institutions, to mostly abide by their rules. Uh, what examples would you give to neoconservatives in the hopes of persuading them that you're right? What, what, what good do these things do? I would say, look at the institutions that we created between 1945 and 1989 for purposes of waging the Cold War. NATO was an institution. It was a body of rules, a body of laws. Think about the NPT. Think about the World Bank. Think about the IMF. Think about GATT. Even the United Nations. The United Nations never did any damage to the United States, and it sometimes was helpful to us. So we crafted this whole body of institutions. It's what people refer to as the liberal international order. And it worked mm -hmm. magic for us. If you were going to wage the Cold War all over again, it's 1948. And I say to you, Bob, you can wage it with or without NATO. You, of course, would axiomatically wage it with NATO, which is an institution, which is a body of rules. So I, I sure. Know. I mean, I think I think most neoconservatives are actually pretty fine with NATO. They just would like to expand it more or something. I mean, I don't think they put it in the same uh, part of their mind as they put the United Nations. I mean, they think of an alliance as this great military thing, and, and they think of the United Nations as this uh, ill-advised peacenik uh, venture. Um, but uh, uh, but anyway, you would say, no, the UN has been uh, good too. And uh, I mean, certainly the IMF has been used by major powers to exert influence over small countries that need loans and things um, uh, there's no, there's no doubt about that, but I guess one question is, um, I mean, if, if the benefit of, uh, if, if there are benefits to the UN, because by and large, uh, there is, uh, compliance with, uh, the, the international laws that it kind of represents, um, 
isn't there going to be less compliance if we ignore? I mean, do, do you do you accept uh, the question in the abstract is, does the United States have some normative influence? Does it have some influence over the degree of compliance with the norm of obeying the law? Right. Like like if we are seen to flagrantly disregard the United Nations when it comes to Iraq, when it comes to Serbia, does that not make it more likely that other nations will disregard international law when they see fit and can get away with it? And a, a good example might be Russia in Georgia, because that came in the wake of uh, Serbia and it was cited. Serbia was cited the U.S involvement in, in Yugoslavia was cited, I think, by Russia to justify that. So, so but the abstract question is, um, if we want other countries to comply with international law, do you think uh, that we are, at least in that sense, better off complying with it ourselves? Will Absolutely. we strengthen the norm of compliance? Absolutely. There's no question if the United States engages in wanton violation of international law, it's going to cause huge problems for us. Right. I mean, uh, I think in the paper that you wrote that you sent me, you talked about the case of Libya and in Libya. Right. The United States uh, got a U.N. agreement uh, to allow it to work or operate military forces uh, to protect uh, civilians on the ground to prevent mass murder. And then what the United States did, and this is, of course, the Obama administration, is they went out and they twisted that mandate they got from the UN uh, to say that the United States could engage, the United States and its West European allies could engage in regime change, uh, which is not what the original mandate said. And this enraged the Russians, and it made the Russians unwilling to cooperate with us on other issues down the road. And I think this supports your point exactly. So I think if you're a great power like the United States or any great power, and you decide that you're gonna violate um, a particular law or a particular rule, you want to understand that they're going to be costs. This is Bob's argument. They're going to be costs. John is saying, you were right, Bob, they're going to be costs, but the benefits in certain cases of violating the law will outweigh those costs, but you cannot erase those costs. Okay, we will get to a second part of Bob's argument, which is that the costs are going to grow as time passes. But before we get to that, just to be clear, in spite of what you just said uh, about, yes, we pay a price when we violate international law, you still recommend violating it when we see violation as in our interest in the short run. Again, you want to go back to where we started. The principal goal of states is survival. Yeah. And you do whatever you have to do when your th survival is threatened. And if violating international law is seen to be essential for preserving your survival, you'll violate international law instantaneously. Okay. I mean, it is worth noting that in the cases we've discussed, Iraq... Uh, Vietnam, so on, uh, Libya, God knows, Serbia with Kosovo, it is, it is not remotely the case. It is not conceivably the case that in anything like the short run, our survival was at stake. You'd have to be literally crazy to think 
that in any immediate direct sense, if we failed to act, our survival might be at stake. So, so these are not, this is not the United States complying with your theoretical expectation. And, and I certainly, and, and it's more reason to, to be careful about translating your theoretical expectation into policy prescription, it seems to me, but go ahead. Uh, but, but, but you're making a fundamental error here. You're, you're forgetting that the realists oppose yeah. all those wars that you're describing. Right. Well, they did and they didn't. They do. You do say as a matter of generic prescription to the United States, yes, whenever you think, whenever you totally freak out and think in a fit of utter insanity that your very survival is at stake, yeah, you should go invade a country. And yet history tells us that that advice that you are giving us only leads to trouble. No, Bob, <laughs> we, we, if you go to the Iraq war, we were telling decision makers that our survival was not at stake and you were gonna do huge damage to the United States if you invaded Iraq. So the realists right. opposed Iraq, they opposed Vietnam. I understand that. but And yet the United States was actually complying with your generic advice. Your generic advice to nations, including the United States, certainly to the United States is, yes, when you think your interests are threatened. You got to break international law, even though, I mean, you continue to give that generic advice, even as, even as on a case by case basis, you keep saying to America, you screwed up again. You know, there, it seems to me there's a paradox there. There is a paradox there. Right. I, I, you, you, I've, not, I've not heard the term, but I do like the term generic advice. Yeah. In terms of generic advice, you're correct. My basic argument is that if a state thinks its survival is at, is at risk and uh, it has to violate international law or some international rule, uh, that it should do that. that. That's my argument. And your point is that that generic advice can be taken by the Paul Wolfowitzes, the Donald Rumsfelds, the Robert McNamara's, the LBJs of the world. And it can end up leading us into uh, unnecessary and unwinnable wars. And I think that's correct. But I would defend myself and my tribe by saying we realists did not believe for one second that the basic rationale uh, that the proponents of those wars were putting forth uh, were uh, reasonable. And, and in fact, they were remarkably foolish. And it's no accident we therefore got our snouts whacked. <laughs> okay. Uh, so anyway, I guess you take my, my point and, and, and uh, I've heard your, your reply on that, on that front. So the other, other part of my argument against your position has to do with the idea that as time goes on, it is going to become uh, more and more disadvantageous to the United States for great powers to selectively ignore international law, and that there are two reasons for this, and that uh, that if you if you accept this, uh, well, l let me just give you the two reasons. So, the the first one is, you know, it seems pretty clear that uh, the United States' relative power in the world is bound to decline. And, and that's 
certainly in economic terms, uh, you, you, that seems to be happening so far. If you look at American GDP as a percentage of world GDP, on balance, I mean, it you know kind of goes up and down, but on balance, there seems to be decline, and for intelligible reasons, which is namely we have we have a we have a very productive economic system, and more and more countries have emulated it, even if China is emulating it with you know significant revision uh, in keeping with the Chinese model, but still the basic idea of capitalism, uh, leaving aside questions of equity and 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 you know socioeconomic justice and so on, it's very productive. It leads to uh, prosperous powerful nations. And as the model has spread, uh, our e relatively economic power has seemed to decline. I would expect that to continue. And in the long run, economic power seems to correlate with military power. So you would expect our relative military power to decline. We are seeing a, a chi Chinese military grow more formidable even as we speak. Uh, and if that's the case, you would expect that a world in which great powers uh, can violate international law when they want at the expense of less great powers, um, which is the world you say has existed and the world you say should exist. Um, but, but if our relative power is declining, then that, that, that principle, great, great powers violating international law, will be less and less advantageous to us, more and more disadvantageous. So maybe we should use this moment when we are powerful and have such influence over global norms with respect to compliance with international law to uh, establish the norm of strict, strict compliance with international law so that if someday, God forbid, we're only the fourth most powerful military in the world or whatever, we won't have to worry about somebody invading us or whatever. You know, the, the idea here is we could strengthen the norm of compliance with international law, possibly in an enduring way, uh, and, and, and I've just laid out one reason that would make sense. What do, you, what do you think of that argument? I think it's an elegant argument, but I think it's wrong. And let me tell you why. Uh, during the unipolar moment, the United States was by far the most powerful state on the planet. Almost everybody agrees that we are now in a multipolar world where the other two great powers in the system are China and Russia. And it's China that's racing to catch up with us in that multipolar world. Now, in Bob's story, uh, as we go from unipolarity to multipolarity, there are greater incentives in multipolarity to cooperate uh, and to obey the rules for the United States because we're not as powerful as we once were when we were in unipolarity. My counter to that would be that in unipolarity, because we had no rival great power, there was hardly ever a reason for us to have to violate international law. Because you remember John's argument is that survival is the key to the story. It's when your survival is at stake that you'll violate the law. But your survival is certainly not going to be at stake in unipolarity. And so yet we kept thinking it was, but I digress. Go ahead. Yes. But as we move to multipolarity and you see this competition heating up between the United States and China, that's going to create a situation where the Chinese and the Americans are going to think their survival is at stake here, there, and everywhere, 
and the incentives to violate international law will be quite great. And I think, by the way, one place you saw this had to do with the uh, ruling on uh, the Philippines, the waters surrounding the Philippines, and whether the Chinese had a right to do X, Y, and Z. And uh, the uh, international uh, court ruled against China, and the Chinese just thumbed their nose at the ruling. Mm -hmm. They just mm -hmm. didn't care. Right. So you see the Americans and the Chinese now are, I think, going to be more prone to violate international law than was the case during the unipolar moment. Let me, let me ask you this hypothetical. If since the end of the Cold War, America, and I know this is a wild thought experiment, but suppose every American president had said, you know, we're just going to make a fetish of compliance with international law. And by the way, the Persian Gulf War was in its own way a, a promising start in the sense that whatever you think of the war, uh, George, George Bush, the, the older George Bush, went through the motions. He went to the Security Council. He got the permission. It was a legal war. He, he was really talking the talk kind of for a while. Now, on the other hand, when he decided to like go kidnap uh, the leader of Panama, he, <laughs> I don't know, he had a different view maybe, but still, if, if, you, if in this thought experiment, um, the, uh, you imagine every president saying, no, it's, I know it might be tempting to, to, to bomb Kosovo, might be tempting to invade Iraq, might be tempting to do regime change in Libya. If in all of these cases, we just delivered a sermon and we complied with all the WTO rulings, which actually we've probably been pretty, pretty good about, I would guess. But um, do you think it would still be just as likely that China would have ignored that ruling? Yes. You do? Yes. So you don't, you don't buy what I kind of hoped earlier you were buying, which was that the United States has some influence over the norm regarding compliance with international law. It, it does have some influence. There's no question about it. But the point is that once you let's assume that in unipolarity, the United States behaved just as you described. Mm -hmm. We we. We, we paid great attention to not violating international law or international rules. Let's assume that's the case. Then we transition from unipolarity to multipolarity and the United States and the Chinese are involved in this security competition, mainly in East Asia. I think in that kind of situation, uh, if either side thinks that international law is getting in the way of them doing something uh, that protects a vital interest, they'll violate international law like that. You know, maybe, but I, I do think, I, I, but, but you do think that the norms matter. You do think that norms can be strengthened or weakened, the norm of compliance with international law. You, you think they have at least some effect. You don't think it would be decisive uh, in this particular case. Let me, let me say one more thing, though, over in, in my thought experiment, I suppose part of our fetish with international law would be, uh, you know, we would focus our indignation against other nations, you know, because as you may or may not know, I consider myself a certain version of a realist. I call it a progressive realist, but I certainly share with realists a number of things, such as a reluctance to intervene in the international, in the internal affairs of nations, unless they do, you know, like, like, you know, something truly egregious, true genocide in the in the old fashioned sense of the word, you know, um, 
things like that. Uh, and, and I share uh, other tendencies of realists, like a, a, a big uh, an emphasis on looking, understanding the perspective of the other players and how their perspective may differ from yours, and they have their perception of their uh, their interests. Uh, uh, another tendency of realists is a due regard for uh, the law of unintended consequences. You know, things uh, war tends to produce unpredicted bad outcomes and so on. Um, uh, but, uh, so, so I share that and, and, and to get back to the first of those, the, the, uh, reluctance to inter to, to, uh, intervene in internal affairs. What if our re the U S rhetoric and, and indignation and its expressions of approval of, of other, other nations behavior and indignation had really focused on international law. And a good example would be like, um, Hong Kong, I mean, I suppose you could argue that's related to international law, the, the, the behavior of China there, that, that it's a kind of a violation of an agreement with Britain. You could make that case, but let's face it, Hong Kong is part of uh, sovereign Chinese territory by any definition. Um, and so in, in my imaginary world, we would put less rhetorical emphasis on that, but we would put a lot of emphasis when China disregards a ruling about its boundaries, as in the case you just described with the Philippines. Um, but, you know, we didn't do that. I don't, I don't even recall an American politician commenting. I'm sure they did. I'm sure the State Department said something about international ruling that China ignored. But the fact is, we're not putting our rhetorical emphasis there. We are putting our rhetorical emphasis in other areas. Uh, that that are not about the cultivation of respect for international law, and ultimately are often just futile. I mean, we can't do anything about Hong Kong. And, and, you know, I mean, we maybe on the margins, but the, you know. So, in my ideal world, it would be a full out attempt to cultivate strength of respect for international law. So I would I would just add that. I know that you're still going to say that even. If I add that into the thought experiment, China still says screw you about the islands. But but anyway, that's part of my thought experiment. If I can make a point here. Yeah. The basic realist logic that drives my train is embedded in Hobbes's famous book, Leviathan. Right. Hobbes is focusing not on states, obviously, but he's focusing on individuals in the state of nature. And the state of nature is synonymous with anarchy. In the state of nature, there's no higher authority. And rules and morals and laws, they don't mean anything in the state of nature for Hobbes. And of course, what is Hobbes's solution to the problem? The solution is to create a Leviathan. It's to move from the state of nature into a state into mm -hmm. an entity that is run by the Leviathan. Well, in international politics, the equivalent would be to move from anarchy to a world state. But we're not moving into a world state. We're remaining in anarchy. And once you're in an anarchic system, a system where there's no higher authority, and mm -hmm. you're interested in privileging survival, Right, you're going to find that states, especially great powers, will do all sorts of nasty things to make sure that they survive. Mm 
Because if they get in trouble, there's no 911 that they can call because there's no Leviathan, no world state, no higher authority. And that's what really drives the train here. It's the yeah. lack of a higher authority. Yeah. And to put it in slightly different terms, it's the lack of a higher authority to enforce the laws. If the United States breaks the law, who's going to punish the United States? They're not going to throw us in jail or fine us, you know, $50 trillion. Right. We just thumb our nose at anybody who tries to do that. So it's the absence of that higher authority. It's, it's the anarchic nature of the system. It's the fact that it's the equivalent of Hobbes's state of nature mm -hmm. that really is of great importance here. Yeah. And I know you said, like, look, you're not uh, you're not against a universe, you know, con completely consistent compliance with international law in a completely absolute sense. You've said, like, look, if there were a world government, maybe I'd reconsider fine, but there just isn't one. And you don't think there's going to be one. In other words, there's not an analogy of the government of a, of a sovereign state. Correct. And I understand that's your position, but I, I'd say uh, a couple of things. I'm, I'm not sure that the situation is as binary as you suggest. In other words, in, 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 uh, I, I would think of it as more of a, a spectrum where we are now and world state at the other end. And, and I don't know if I want to get I don't want to get to a highly centralized world state, probably. But I would like much more in the way of global governance and, and compliance with the laws of war. And, and, and I can imagine us evolving in that direction. And here I, I wish if I weren't on vacation, I would have uh, a copy of Hans Morgenthau's uh, War Among, uh, Politics Among Nations with me. Now, Morgenthau, of course, is maybe the central uh, intellectual, you know, kind of the godfather of realism. I don't know where exactly he stands in the pantheon. You tell me, but he's a major, major figure no, in no the development, no, in the no, development no. of realist theory. There's a line in there where he says something like, it starts off kind of like what you say, like, look, we can't rule out the possibility that there could someday be uh, a world state. And if so, uh, things will be different. But but then he says, uh, I hope I don't have this too wrong, but then he says, however, and I think the upshot is a realist would not expect the world state to magically spring into existence. He kind of says, I think the upshot is it would be a process. It, this would, a world state would result from nations pursuing their interests in the way we describe. He, he doesn't say all that, but I think that's very much the spirit of what he says. And I would, I would uh, this leads to kind of the second um, thing that I think is gonna be different about the future, in addition to our relative loss of, of uh, power, is, is that nations are going to be involved in more non-zero sum games. I mean, just take bioweapons as just one. If, if the if this pandemic has shown us nothing else and the whole controversy over the lab leak, I think it has shown us that our, our, our mechanism for uh, enforcing any kind of global law about bioweapons is woefully inadequate. We have no idea what's going on in other nations. We have no control over it. And that could be ruinous. Okay. I think that's just one example. I think arms race in space, uh, artificial intelligence arms race, of course, climate change. I, I think 
technology is driving us into more and more non-zero-sum relationships with other nations where our nation's interest calls for institutionalized cooperation with them. And that's the kind of long-term trend, I think, could lead us uh, along the path that I think Morgenthau kind of describes there, which is, in other words, through, through increments, through, through, through the incremental uh, progress driven by uh, the rational pursuit of national self-interest, you get to something more like global governance, maybe not a world state, but with something more complete in the way of respect for international law. Well, I make two points. One is, if you look at what's been happening in the world over the past 20 years, there has been a resurgence of nationalism yep. all over the planet. Yep. And nationalism cuts against the creation of a world state because nationalism is all about maintaining the sovereign states that now exist. Second point I'd make to you, and somewhat related to that, is you, Bob, look at how the international community or the various states on the planet have reacted to the pandemic. How can you feel confident that we're heading towards a world where there's more cooperation, more rules, and more obedience to the rules. Oh, I'm not. I'm not. I didn't say I was confident. I, I said. I said I was confident we're leading to a place where, if nations wisely pursue their self-interest, we will see the institutionalized cooperation. You're quite right that right now we're seeing uh, a backlash, uh, broadly speaking, in the sense of more nationalism, more ethno-nationalism. Which, which I don't think is conducive to the wise pursuit of national uh, self-interest. It's, it's conducive to a lot of irrational behavior, if you ask me. Um, the, uh, and you're right that the pandemic hasn't been encouraging. I mean, I would say that pandemics are funny. They actually have a lot of genuine zero-sum dynamics. Finite supply of vaccines, who gets them? They're, 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 it's not, that, that's not, a pandemic has an overarching non-zero-sum logic that God knows we haven't paid much attention to. Uh, but uh, it's not it's not totally shocking that you get a certain amount of divisiveness in the midst of pandemic. But just to clarify what I'm saying, it's not a it's not a prediction that there's going to be a happy outcome. It's a prediction that if nations don't pursue their self-interest wisely, as I'm defining wisely, it will be an unhappy outcome. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Just to come in from a slightly different angle, I believe that all great powers have competing interests and mutual interests. And I think when you talk about climate change, you talk about non-proliferation, I think the great powers have mutual interests. And in those cases, I think you'll get cooperation. It varies over space and time for a variety of reasons, but you'll get cooperation there. But the problem is they also have competing interests. This is the United States and China. Only one country can be the top dog in East Asia, either the United States or China. They both can't be top dogs. And therefore, you have intense competition between the two actors to see who is going to be the king of the hill in East Asia, right? Those conflicting interests. And that's what really drives the realist train. It's the story about competing interests in a world where there's no higher authority 
and you're interested in surviving. See, I'd say to a guy like you, if you're running a state, Bob, right, you understand full well that the system is anarchic, that there's no higher authority, mm-hmm. and you surely understand that survival has to be the principal goal of your country, whatever that country might be. Well, if you believe that, don't you think that if your survival is threatened, if another state is doing something to threaten your survival and to deal with that threat, you have to break the law? Wouldn't you break the law? You you would, I, I don't believe you would obey the law if obeying the law threatened the survival of your state, would you? How insane would someone have to be to think that China could do anything in its region that literally threatens the survival of the United States? Well, there are a huge number of people who believe. How how insane are they? I don't think they're insane. Are they right? Are they right? I think I, I actually think they're right. Look. Oh, come on. What? What What are you worried about? China? I mean, I'm not saying we should cede all the ter- all the turf you may be talking about. I think for the sake of upholding international law, we, we need to um, really put a lot of attention on what China is doing with with islands and so on. But but give me the scenario where China taking those islands threatens the survival of the United States. Well, do you think that it would be a threat to the United States if China dominated Asia the way we dominate the Western Hemisphere. In other words- A threat to the survival of the United States? Yeah. No. Then why do you even care about the rise of China? What would you, would you have fought against Nazi Germany or Imperial Japan? Well, that's a, Nazi Germany is a special case. Why? because of what what they were doing internally. I mean, uh, you know, we didn't, I, I, we didn't care about that. We didn't go. Well, to, they didn't care. I mean, look, I, we, I wasn't we, there. OK, well, we did not go to war. Because, no, we didn't. That's true. Because that's of, true. of the Soviets genocide look, policy. Let I me mean, be clear. Germany. Let me be clear. I am in favor of upholding international law. By any standard, Germany was violating it on a repeated and, and, and consequential basis every time it sent troops somewhere that wasn't its sovereign territory. OK, so. Uh, so I am in favor of upholding international law. So you, you're telling me that you're if China violates international law, you're willing yeah. to go to war to punish it? I'm not I'm not saying I would go to war over those islands, for example. I'm not saying that right now. And, I, and I'm certainly not saying I'd go to war over Taiwan. But if you're asking me, uh, you know, in the case of Germany, which which was doing something uh, even leaving aside what it was doing internally is well beyond anything China's done. Um, you know, uh, that it, that's not a tough call for me. I, I mean, you know, you, you provide material assistance to the people, the allies, those being threatened and invaded by Germany, that, that's not a tough call for me. And then we wound up uh, sending troops and, and that's fine. But, uh, and look, I wouldn't, I mean, here's the thing. See, what I'm not ready to do, and this gets back to what, I mean, if you want to ask me if I were king, if I were king of America, then we would have had a long history of complying with international law, and I would feel a lot better about going to war with China over its violation of international law by taking some islands. But the fact is, we've done the equivalent of that consistently. So no, I'm not going to go, I, I, given America's history of flagrantly ignoring 
international law, am I willing to uh, have a military conflict over some islands because that's a violation of international law? I just don't feel comfortable. No. On the other hand, if I had been running America, we would have a much stronger track record. And I think there would already be more compliance with international law. And I think China would be more reluctant to flagrantly disregard it. But we disagree about that thought experiment. In any event, what I'm not willing to do is uh, go to war over rules that we ourselves violate. I think one thing you and I agree on is that the liberal internationalists who talk so much about the rule-based international order spend half of their time recommending violation of the rules. That's, and, much, that's much too strong. Okay. Spend, again, spend again. 7% of their time, in, but in very consequential cases. Yeah, I, I think you know we're, we're not quite the rule breaker you make us out to be. Uh, that's not to say we don't on occasion break the the rules. Oh, come on, Iraq, Libya, Kosovo, arguably the Syria intervention. That's just the last twenty years. These are hugely consequential things. We get hundreds of thousands of people killed, and now you want to go to war over a few islands where nobody's going to die? I mean, again. If we were complying with international law consistently, I'd be willing to hear that argument. But we do violate it massively and consequentially. And the world is a mess because of it. And the Middle East is a mess because of it. And Donald, Donald Trump was president because of it, if you ask me. Yeah, I don't dispute that. I think the great paradox here is that all of these liberal inter internationalists who tout the virtues of international law don't hesitate to uh, violate international law. We agree. They think it's in America's national interest. We agree, and I know that confirms your descriptive. I don't have a problem with, with, a, with, a, with, with the descriptive part of your theory as it has applied to history thus far. I'm saying it's in, in the interest of the United States to not continue to comply with that description of behavior by great power. <laughs> so, uh, I don't know. We could. We, we've. Let me see how long we've been talking. This has been very uh, productive. I think um, it's been uh, well, not quite an hour. I guess the last thing I'd say, and then I'll give you something to say, is uh, I think even at the national level. I mean, you make a big distinction. You say, well, sovereign nations have these these you know these governments, these national governments, state level governments, and that's the reason. You know, that's the big difference. And that's why you can you can say we expect everyone to comply with the law. But I would say two things. First of all, not everybody does. Within nations, as between them, you see powerful interests, sometimes write rules in ways that favor them. And when they can't do that, just getting away with violation more often. I mean, in America, rich people get better lawyers. They don't go to they don't go to, to jail for possession of marijuana. Um, and uh, and certainly sometimes they write the laws in their favor. So there's that difference. Uh, I mean, there's that greater degree of commonality, I would say, between the intranational situation and the international situation. The other thing I'd say is, I think the evolution of the rule of law in America has been more evolutionary than it's sometimes thought of as being. I mean, in, in the piece I wrote, which was in uh, about your the debate you had on international law, which is what led to our debate today, um, I, uh, I mentioned that's in my uh, in the non-zero newsletter. I mentioned, um, you know, the fact that at one point, uh, not so long ago, lynching was not all that unusual. And it wasn't just it wasn't just blacks who were lynched, Italian Americans who were, were lynched in the in the early part of 
uh, well, late part of the uh, 19th century. Uh, there had been a lot of white on white lynchings before the Civil War in the South. And what's shocking is that with some of these things, even uh, even in the, I guess, very late uh, 19th century, you saw you would have you had this lynching in New Orleans, mass lynching of Italian-Americans. And everybody said it was great. Teddy Roosevelt wasn't yet president, said it was a great thing. New York Times said it was a great thing. It's, it's stunning to go back and see how, uh, you know, frontier justice was actually applauded uh, in, in the, the, uh, by the very kinds of people and the very kinds of institutions that today we would expect to absolutely not put up with that kind of thing. So I think the rule of law, respect for the rule of law, I mean, it, you know, the, it, it progresses in fits and starts and there is backsliding, but I think it's been a little bit more of an evolutionary process intranationally um, than we realize. And I, I think uh, those of us who want it to apply more broadly internationally and more, more consistently have to see that as an evolutionary process and, and, and have to encourage the United States and other other powers to do what they can to uh, abet that evolution. So that's 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 that part of my sermon. And now I'll just let you say whatever you want to say uh, for as long as you want. And then we can well, let me just ask you a question. Sure. If you were to look at international law between 1850 and the present, wouldn't you agree that there has been an evolutionary process at play? And it has been a positive one. Yeah. Internet. Yeah. So the situation at the international level is not altogether different than the situation at the intranational level. Right. Well, right. That's my point. It's like I, what I don't get is why you expect the evolution to kind of stop, in a sense, for, for the rule of international law to not grow stronger. And in fact, you seem to not want it to grow no, entirely strong. My, my point to you is it can grow stronger. My point to you is that rules do matter. The great powers need rules. They need laws. I don't dispute that. But my bottom line is that as long as there is no Leviathan, right, and states are interested in their survival, they are, number one, going to compete for their power. And competition, as you know, is the opposite of cooperation. And number two, if they get into circumstances where they think vital interests are at stake and international law tells them to do something that they believe threatens their survival, they will violate international law. And that kind of logic is not at play for the most part inside a black box, inside a state, because there you have a 911. You have a police force that you can call. You have a lawyer that you can call if I jilt you in a deal, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a, different, it's a different structure inside the black box, inside a country than it is in the international system. And that's what limits the progress that you can make at the international level. I guess I would just say, uh, on the other hand, uh, it hasn't always been as much like that inside the black box. You know, the rule of law hasn't always been pervasive, hasn't always regulated so many parts of human affairs. Uh, so uh, 
there has been an, a kind of evolutionary trajectory there. And as you yourself note, there has been one at the international level. Uh, there, there used to be much less international law and, and uh, probably more meager compliance with what law there was. Um, so I would say the, you know, I hope the night is young uh, and, and that uh, we'll continue to see, however fitful, continue to see progress at the international level. Um, but uh, I, think, I think this has been a, a, a good, uh, an exchange that illuminates our perspectives and why I'm right and you're wrong. Would you agree with that, John? <laughs> no, you wouldn't. <laughs> um, the the uh, but um, but seriously, I think this has been very he healthy. I think it points to a whole argument we could have about China, and maybe 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 someday should. Maybe maybe if you have time, we'll have it. We'll have a conversation down the road about that because I think uh, it, it's not totally clear to me how your how your policy preferences there. Uh, makes sense in light of other things you believe, but uh, but but I think we we probably uh, probably said enough abstractly about international law for for now, and and can get uh, focus on a on a concrete application maybe in another conversation. That would be great. I'd love to do that. Okay. Well, I really appreciate it, uh, John. Do you want to say anything about like what you're working on, or where people can go to find what you have done, or anything, or what? Uh, well, they can go to my website and, uh, you know, see what I'm uh, publishing. Uh, what I'm working on now is I'm working on a book on rationality in international politics. Uh, uh -huh. Title well, of the book is, which I'm writing with uh, my colleague, Sebastian Rosado, who teaches at Notre Dame. The title of the book is Homo Theoreticus, Rationality in International Politics. Uh, and uh, do you... Yeah, go ahead. And I was going to say, and in addition to that, I, I'm just finishing uh, a piece for foreign affairs uh, on uh, uh, U U.S. policy and the rise of China. And you just wrote a piece on Afghanistan that I haven't read yet, but where is that? No, I just gave a radio interview on okay. Afghanistan on ABC Radio in Australia. That's on my website, too. Okay, good. Um so, uh, well, that all sounds good. Uh, just, I have to ask, in light of the book you're writing, do you think the amount of rationality in international politics is underrated or overrated? It's underrated. I, I believe there's a lot of rationality in international politics. Okay. Well, but that's, a us, that's a subject for another day. For another, yeah, I, I can imagine. If I'm seeing a third, I'm envisioning a third conversation already, but we'll, <laughs> for now, we'll leave it at one. And uh, thanks so much, John. This has been great. My pleasure, Bob.